Hello, and welcome to episode 132 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cummings, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we have our first tri-continental podcast with our special guests, a couple of high-powered mining lawyers. We have Rebecca Campbell and John Tivy from the uh, global law firm White and Case. Rebecca uh, Campbell, she's a transplanted Australian. We contacted her by Skype in the London, UK office of White and Case, while John Tivy, we reached him in Melbourne, Australia. The topic of our discussion is going to be a report they wrote called Mining and Metals 2019, China and Trade Tensions Top Industry Fear List. So kind of a risk outlook for uh, this year amongst their clients. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of 17 explorers, developers, and miners all active in the Yukon. You can visit their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and at investyukon on Twitter. Two bits of news out of the Yukon lately. We have Victoria Gold. They're building their Eagle Mine construction, a heat bleach mine. They reported at the end of February that the project is 75% complete. And they're going to beat their production target by a month. So they now say they're confident the team can beat the schedule by one month with first ore reporting to the heap leach pad in July 2019. So that would have a first gold pour in September 2019. On the downside, the construction capital cost has increased by about 10% from $442 million to $487 million. That is going to mean they need to raise another $25 million, which they're going to do through a private placement. More Yukon news. We have White Gold Corp. They closed their acquisition of QV Gold project. That includes 230,000 ounces of gold uh, in the inferred category, and that is contiguous to White Gold's existing White Gold property, and they say this new area has uh, compelling new targets. I must say, on a personal note, this podcast, it represents... Bit of a milestone for me. This is my one-year anniversary of doing the podcast. It's been a, a real thrill and a steep learning curve for me. So far, we have uh, I've put together fifty-one uh, episodes and minor moments. Another one on the way. And since I've been doing it, we've had seventy thousand plays, which is fantastic, all over the world. And our listenership is up about twenty-five percent from the previous year. So uh, we have very strong growth. Our listenership. I always like to look at this. Our top four cities are Toronto, Vancouver, San Jose, and San Francisco, and Montreal has climbed up to fourth spot now. One thing I'm quite pleased with is, I would say the first two years of our podcast, it was always San Francisco and San Jose were the uh, listeners in the U.S., and now it's spread across all the big cities of the U.S., so uh, that's nice to see. And in terms of countries, it's always the big four English-speaking mining countries, Canada, USA, UK, and the Australia. And then there's the second tier of often mining-related countries here, Sweden, Germany, Mexico, Brazil, Finland, France, and Spain. And then further down, you have Indonesia, Russia, Chile, Japan, Netherlands, Ireland, United Arab Emirates, South Africa, and Norway, as well as India. So it's truly an international listenership, which is uh, pretty interesting, a little different than our paid uh, subscriber base. Before we get into it, we have our second promoted content spot here, an advertisement. This is the second of four with Amit Gupta. He's the chairman of Montreal-based gold explorer Yorbo Resources. They have gold properties in Quebec's Abitibi region, so we will hear uh, from Amit.
have a lot of uh, news about the Scott Lake property over the last three years. And what we've now done is that we're going from the Scott Lake property to something called the Shibugumu Belt, which where we've consolidated another property to the northeast and are now doing drilling on what we call Scott West, which is on the other side of the Gwilym Lake Fall. And by doing that, we're in the process now of finding a better way to exploit the whole structure. So to focus on the structure, it's a great thing for us because it is something good for the town. Uh, we have the Cree that have a, their village nearby, and you know we can focus on jobs and things that we in a collaborative way with the Cree rather than just try to do something on a on a, a typical you know NSR or payment basis. So you know it's really a nice story for the region, both from a mining perspective and from a, let's say a regional economic perspective. So those are really the things that we're focusing on, and then we've got other things on our radar like our Bechefer property, but that's really for next year. After Soquam has continued and do it, finished doing their work in the Bechefer area, then we'll know where we stand with that property, for instance. Now we have our feature interview with our two high-powered lawyers, Rebecca Campbell and John Tivy. They're both partners at the international law firm White & Case, especially for our Canadian listeners. Uh, as far as I understand, there is no Canadian office of White & Case, but they are a very large international law firm, prestigious, with over 100 years' uh, experience, founded in New York. And today they have over 2,000 lawyers in 41 offices in 29 countries. Rebecca is a partner in the London office, and John Tivy a partner in the Melbourne office. Between the two of them, they have represented quite a few very large names in the mining business, such as Norilsk Nickel, the underwriters for Uranium One, and the uh, Compagnie des Bauxites de Guinée, Eurochem. They represented a bidder for the Tenke Fungarume assets in the DRC. They represented the MMG-led consortium on a $7 billion acquisition of the Las Bambas copper project from Glencore. They also represented Zijin Mining in China. We'll take a little musical break and return with Rebecca and John. We are joined by a couple of high-powered lawyers from the law firm White & Case, international law firm. We have Rebecca Campbell in London and John Tivy in Melbourne. How are you doing? Very good. good. Thanks for having us. And uh, both are mining metal sector experts, and um, both are advising on project acquisitions and investment reviews. But uh, the reason we're here today is, is Rebecca and John, they put out a sentiment, I would, I would call it a sentiment study. It's the third annual survey. And this year it's called Mining and Metals 2019, China and Trade Tensions Top Industry Fear List. So there's a lot of topics in this uh, summary, but I'm not sure who wants to speak first or go back and forth. But uh, just a, a baseline question, who are you polling and who are the number of respondents and um, their positions, that kind of thing? 
let me jump in first. But um, John, you, you'll soon learn that uh, John Tivy and I have been working together for uh, over fifteen years. So if we interrupt each other during this podcast, it's uh, it's because we, we we are so used to working with each other um, over the years. Right. So to take you through the the study that we conducted this year, and this is actually now our third annual study that we have undertaken of effectively of you know our most senior clients Mm -hmm. and we have we have asked them for their thoughts for the year ahead uh, for the mining and metal sector Mm -hmm. and so very much what some of the thoughts contained in here are very much driven from the feedback we've received from our clients and our contacts throughout the sector. Mm-hmm. So we had this year we had over 50 respondees, wow. um, but looking at those respondees, we know that they are you know very much at the very senior end of the spectrum in the sector, and you know very much those who are leading thinking and decision-making for the year ahead. Now, just uh, to sort of set the table for the 2019 outlook, could you just characterize 2018 for your clients? What were their priorities and uh, view on the industry, that, that kind of thing? Well, Tibby, you can jump in too. I think 2018 was overall a relatively benign year for mm-hmm. our clients in that they managed to effect a number of important transactions without those transactions necessarily, let's call it shooting the lights out. You know, mm-hmm. we're not in the, uh, you know, we're not in the super cycle years. Yes. Um, we're certainly, you know, towards the top of the cycle at the moment. And so the transactions that we managed to get done in 2018 with our clients, you know, very much reflected that. I mean, obviously a couple of, you know, number of very, very high profile transactions, including uh, acting for Newmont in the Newmont Gold Corp merger, uh, acting for Kaz Adam Prom in very, very formative IPO, mm-hmm. uh, and acting on a number of very, very significant financings in the sector. But all of those very much, let's call it the top of the cycle but not necessarily the super cycle all over again. But, John, you might want to jump in. Yeah, I think my other observation about 2018 was that it, whilst it wasn't a big bang year until very late in the piece when the gold mergers emerged, mm-hmm. prior to that, it was a year that illustrated some themes that have come out of our surveys before. So there was effectively ongoing balance sheet management around asset, you know, along the lines of asset disposals. Mm -hmm. There were development decisions that were made with a view to managing balance sheets. So, for example, Anglo's decision to press the button on Quellaveco was done in a way where it brought in its joint venture partner to a much bigger position in the project so that it could manage its risk in a way that was acceptable to its investors. And then the other theme resource nationalism. I think the Rio transaction on Grasberg was a real case study on on um, you know resource nationalism globally. And you know, so all those three things I think were real illustrations of what our survey has shown before and reflected where the industry is at. Now let's just jump right into the key risks for mining and metals sector in twenty nineteen. You have quite a list here you've come up with. Maybe start from the top and go down. Well the top as identified overwhelmingly by our respondents to the survey was 
around the Chinese slowdown. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the more interesting element of the Chinese slowdown is that we certainly see for the first time in you know, perhaps four or five mining cycles, the possibility of a sort of global macroeconomic slowdown and mm. being coupled with a downturn in uh, in the mining and metal sector as well. And certainly that's something we're preparing a number of our clients for um, and preparing our business for as well. Now, obviously, it's not absolutely certain to occur, but if it does occur, it could have very, very profound implications for the sector. When you look at what happened in 2015 and 2016, where the sector was severely distressed, but that wasn't necessarily the case you know, from a macroeconomic perspective globally. And then the converse of that in through the 2007 through 2009, to where the global economic cycle was very much in a downturn and yet the mining and metals sector was quite counter-cyclical at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think one of the things we're, we're thinking about very deeply and discussing with our clients and preparing for is, well, what happens if the two of them collide? Um, because at that point in time, the mining and metals sector is not necessarily going to be the preferred source of capital for the likes of the, you know, the, the distressed investors who mm-hmm. did flood into the sector in 2015 and 2016 and actually support the sector at that point in time. Now, with the Chinese slowdown, can you break that into uh, the commodities? Some are more of a concern than others? Yes. Well, let, let me start. And again, of course, John, jump in. I think one of the greater areas of concern and and honestly perhaps it comes from a, a lack of full knowledge is around what's going to happen in the steel sector and in particular whether the a number or in, in China whether a number of the steel mills particularly those that are relatively marginal will continue to be supported through the next you know say 18 to 24 months and those steel mills, especially those that are further away from the coast, you know, we can see a lot of changes occurring in the Chinese steel sector. If those are not going to, if those, if the number of those steel mills and some of the ones that, again, are already offline, if they're going to completely fall off the radar, then that will have quite profound implications for the steel making materials sector. That to me is the most obvious one, but I have to say uh, you could basically go across the entire commodity spectrum here. And TV, you might want to jump in on things like concentrate. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to say, I think my observation would be that, you know, iron ore, steel and coal, metallurgical coal are all sort of wrapped up in the same volatility, you know, where is the China economy going? Mm-hmm. But then, then you sort of peel out copper and cobalt, which are all wrapped up in the whole electrification debate and yeah. growth yeah. cycle. So that, and, then, and then you have sitting on its own as well as gold, which is, again, all about the volatility globally and the safe harbour and all, all that sort of thing. So there's a number of different streams of thought, I think, and buckets into which the commodities fit, depending on how they fit into that sort of economic story or the different economic stories and their impacts globally. That's one of the things we've found in recent times, actually, John, that 
again, we're, we're having more and more sophisticated discussions with our clients and, and others who participate in the sector around really on, there is now a very, very deep understanding that different commodities, each of them needs to be treated individually in mm-hmm. your analysis. Yes. Just to give you a classic example, today I was looking at something around pricing of lithium globally and in the context of the Greenfields project that we're looking at. And obviously there's a very, very hot debate going on globally at the moment as to what is going to emerge as the, you know, the preferred benchmark pricing for lithium as it moves from being something that's really not transparently priced into a commodity that is. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest factor in all of that is whether China will be a net importer or exporter of lithium products. Yeah, and it goes on, right? And so I think we just cannot have any of these discussions without understanding the impact of Chinese slowdowns or not. And then, indeed, the second biggest uh, trend that was identified by our clients, which was around trade tension. Mm-hmm. And again, that stems from the tensions between China and the US and the various barriers that are being put in place across steel, aluminium, silicon, and potentially other commodities. I actually see those two points as part of the same discussion. Right. I have a hard time with import uh, duties, just figuring out what is posturing and what is a real duty that's going to stick. Where do things stand right now with sort of the saber rattling between China and the U.S. particularly? I mean, I think it's it's very real, particularly in those commodities I just mentioned, steel, Mm -hmm. aluminium, silicon. You are now starting to see it the retaliatory and protective measures around the rest of the globe start to kick in. You know, Europe has now brought in its anti-dumping duties on steel in the last month, effectively to protect itself against the steel that would have been going to the US now being dumped in the EU. And, you know, and so it goes on. You know, the protective barriers get built up further and further, you know, you see today, literally just today in the news, discussions around whether Brazil will itself be putting in place retaliatory measures against the EU. Now, all of that, you know, leads to lots and lots of arbitrage, but not very much free trade. Mm-hmm. And so in in the long run, it's a deeply inefficient way to trade, in my view. Obviously, there are different views on that topic, um, but it certainly distorts trade in commodities at their true value. Uh, John, maybe you want to jump in with another risk that was uh, highlighted by your clients. We seem to get a consistent theme that there are, uh, there's a focus on operating costs and you know, uh, operating costs pressure is something that's feeding through the system. I think, I don't know, Rebecca, whether, you, whether there's anything particular on that, but certainly as it's, it's certainly becoming in a lot of jurisdictions it's becoming much more difficult to do business and therefore, you know, and that feeds through not just in the, the difficulty adds to cost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Rebecca, I don't know what other colour yeah. you want to add to that. I mean, I think the other area that we've been having related to operating cost pressures and effectively the efficiency of, you know, operating the sector is something that we've been having discussion with a number of our, let's call it our major mining company clients around digitalizing their supply chain Mm -hmm. 
and and innovation in the sector generally, as they, I think a lot of let's call it the low hanging fruit has been taken out from a cost perspective. Mm-hmm. And now we see some fascinating projects ongoing around how to increase efficiency, particularly in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. And so that is an area of huge interest for us and something where we've been developing a number of really interesting systems with our clients around trading, blockchain solutions, AI, live analytics, Areas where we're, from a legal perspective, we've been less involved, but obviously bring huge efficiencies to the supply chain. So things like autonomous trucks, autonomous trains, and so on and so forth. And and to me, this is a really interesting opportunity for the sector, which has traditionally been seen as quite old-fashioned, not that technologically advanced, and you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's a perception rather than a reality. But a real opportunity to bring efficiency to the supply chain and then together with that, bring other attributes to the supply chain, for example, to be able to demonstrate quite clearly where your product came from, who produced it, that it was produced in accordance with particular standards. And so combining all of those things is something that's an area of keen interest for us at the moment. Now, Going down your list here of key risks, resource nationalism, is, I think it's a little more localized now with certain countries in the world. What do you see uh, happening there in 2019, especially in Africa? My view is that will continue to be a very strong theme. I think um, you know, the DRC situation still has to play out in particular, and there's a lot of people who've got their eyes on how that scenario is going to play out. But mm-hmm. I think what people saw with the DRC was, you know, or at least the perception from the government side was that despite the changes, there was still some uh, increased level of investment by some of the players there. Mm-hmm. So I think we're seeing across Africa, and Rebecca, you, you know, want to add some of the other examples, but, you know, we've, there are a number of other examples where in addition to the DRC situation where the whole fiscal regime was changed and the lock-in that the mining companies had was taken away. In other jurisdictions, you know, there's been retrospective taxes imposed. I just think that that is a continuing theme as the uh, countries seek to address the tax imbalance in their budget, try and balance their budget, and you'll see varying forms of it across the globe, driven sometimes by governments and sometimes by you know, local stakeholders who are exerting pressure for greater greater benefits to return back to local communities. Just to add to that, I mean, obviously, DRC, Zambia, Tanzania, and various places throughout the world, right? So not just Africa. It's, it's important to bear in mind that this is this is something Global. that the sector faces globally, and you know, even yeah. in the most developed jurisdictions like Australia and Canada, right? So it's not specific to less developed uh, economies. One of the things, uh, this is something we've written about in the past, and it's a bit of a conundrum for the sector, which is that the trend in government exerting greater pressure to increase the level of government or, or national take 
uh, from mining projects, typically we see tends to lag behind the, the, the mining or metal cycle itself. And it's something that we see as being very unfortunate because it means that often, again, we're probably at this point, we think, beyond the top, the very, very top of the cycle or maybe perhaps starting to wane off. Yet it's at this point where we see the greatest pressure from a resource nationalism perspective. Right. And one of our general observations on the sector is if the two of those things could get in sync with each other, you may actually see better outcomes for everyone. And certainly it's something that, you know, it goes beyond individual transactions and individual clients and so on. It's something that we, you know, we feel very strongly about. Mm-hmm. Now jumping to the next part of your survey here, the number one priorities for 2019 for the mining sector, the number one was shareholder returns will be a priority. Can you just explain that? So again, I think that that's really a function of where we are in the cycle and particular mm-hmm. for the mid-caps and the majors who are very, very focused on ensuring that they cannot be, a, you know, the subject of the same criticism that they perhaps received during the last cycle, which was that, you know, the benefits of the top of the cycle were not returned to shareholders. Uh, and also that the, the criticism that many of them received, which was that value-destructive M&A occurred at the top of the cycle. And so, you know, and again, you can see it in all of the earnings announcements you know, over the last few months where you can see extremely healthy returns going to particularly the shareholders of the major mining companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, li- they're listening to their shareholders in that regard. What that means more broadly is that each of the, particularly, the, let's call it the, the major mining companies have very much shifted their approach compared to the last cycle. And that has implications for future investment into greenfield and growth projects for the sector, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, I continue, and Rebecca, you know, we've had this discussion a few times, that at some point you get a sort of a clash between the shareholder returns, the desire to meet shareholder to achieve shareholder returns and their expectations about the big companies have been under pressure to avoid making major acquisitions or major greenfield development decisions because of the lessons learnt from the previous super cycle. But at some point, you know, that clashes with the expectation from shareholders that they are participating in a growth story. So, you know, or at least it, a sustainable story, right? I mean, yeah, that's yes, correct. Thing. Yeah. So, what point over the next twelve months or twenty-four months or however long it takes will the pendulum swing to people having to do more aggressive things around protecting their, for example, growing their copper portfolio or growing their gold portfolio? Yes. And uh, I think we saw snippets of it in the gold sector towards the end of last year with the mergers mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the pressures built to a point where you know there was the real the only real story for investors was one around those sorts of transactions to continue growth uh, and continue to deliver a platform that would be able to deliver the right sort of returns to shareholders now when does that happen 
in the majors, I don't know. But at the moment, our survey seems to indicate that people are still being very cautious about that. Yeah. And we haven't reached that point yet. Right, yeah. Right. And you can see that in our results, right, where we had, you know, what will be the main priority for the sector? 31.4% of our respondents said shareholder returns. The next one was 29.4% said productivity gains. Uh, to my mind, one begets the other. And then trailing behind that, 13.7% said M&A and 13, the same, 13.7% said mm-hmm. Greenfield growth. Right? So there's just a complete separation between those, between growth versus shareholder returns. Now, just looking at the various commodities here, you know, of course, 2018, the bloom came off the rose a little bit for the battery, minerals, lithium, cobalt, nickel. But just looking forward to 2019, what stood out in your respondents' minds there as a positive uh, commodity? I think copper was the focus again yeah. in uh, 2019, and that has actually been a consistent response over a number of years. We've really seen our clients almost you know, looking, obviously interested in the battery minerals, but I don't think that's a great surprise to TV or myself that it's very much been in that copper or Copper polymetallic projects have very much been the focus of you know many many of the sector and many many of our clients. I'd agree with that. I think there are many many people out in the in the industry looking for that large copper pre-development project, and there really aren't that many of them around anymore. Yes. So they're all chasing the same sort of uh, jewel in the crown. Mm-hmm. But it's a Continual 10-year-old discussion. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one last uh, question. Something big that happened since your survey was the Valley disaster in Brazil. You're two lawyers. What is, the, what is the legal implications of this for everybody involved? It's hard to wrap your head around it. I think before we talk about the legal implications, the first thing to talk about is the human implications. And I think for the mining and metal sector globally, it's such a crucial, crucial philosophical point that we should be able to operate in a way that doesn't cause harm to human health and life, right? And and to the environment as well. And I think for the likes of Vale, you know, and any of the any of the other, you know, reputable operators in the sector, you know, no one would go to work in the morning if they didn't believe that they were operating in a safe environment Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. when something like this happens you know it's very difficult for us to comment at all on the legal implications because a lot is changing at this point in time however i think you know a lot is unknown at this point in time so i don't think we should comment on it other than to say that we know that you know everyone at vale and indeed everyone at all of the all of the other you know operators in the sector thinking very, very deeply to ensure that and to understand whether it is in fact the case that upstream tailings dams are something that the sector can can continue to operate with into the future. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously not just the most, you know, recent disaster, but also what happened at Tamarco a few years ago. And I think as I say, I think it actually goes beyond legal implications. Obviously there's you know there's many, many legal implications in the knob itself and it goes more to the sector's absolute 
commitment to operating in a way that protects human health and the environment. And I know that commitment is deeply held. So it's just a case over the, or not just, it's a case of over the coming weeks, months and years of ensuring that that continues to be the case. At the very least, I would imagine shareholders are going to be asking a lot more questions of all mining companies and and mining companies will have to get more specific about their uh, tailings programs, I would think. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think all stakeholders will. You know, I think it's going to be well. I'd say I would give my. I would say re-emerge because in the past it has in the past been a big issue, and I think it's now re-emerged as one of the big challenges for the industry around. Uh, yeah, I think Rebecca expressed it very well. But there's a you know there's a real the other aspect to it is the perception of the industry globally amongst yeah. all the stakeholders mm-hmm. you know and i think that is a huge issue that everyone is dealing with as secondary to the one rebecca outlined anything else you want to uh, touch on that i didn't uh, ask about the only thing i'd say uh, i would add uh, the to me got the gold sector as you've seen is is a real uh, interesting one at the moment and i think uh, a space to be watched both at the mid cap and major level and in, in addition, the spin-offs that are sort of might emerge off the back of some of the mergers. So that's an area we're very interested in uh, monitoring and we expect to see some activity this year. Rebecca? I agree with that, John. And, and then I think the other area where we're expecting to see some activity this year is in some of the, let's call it the late cycle growth projects, mm-hmm. which we haven't really talked about in this podcast. Uh, and we see a number of projects actually moving through past development decision over the next six to 12 months. These are the projects that are going to, again, be the engine room of the cycles to come. So that's something which we find very interesting, obviously, to be balanced against what we've just talked about, which is, you know, ensuring that all of those projects are able to operate in a safe way. But again, we think a number of those things will be green-lighted before what we see as, you know, in time, the upcoming downturn of the sector. Okay. And uh, I'll just let our listeners know I'll link to the um, study, full study on the White and Case website here in our show notes. I guess that's it. Thanks for so much for joining us, John and Rebecca. Thank you, John. Great pleasure to join you. Thanks a lot. That's great. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. That does it for this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, you can help out the podcast by liking it, subscribing to it, and sharing it. All those things help uh, raise the profile of the podcast. Thanks again to our podcast sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. Check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at, at investyukon, all one word. That's it for now. Bye-bye. <music>